In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwin. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. I'm on Instagram Live, so I'm not taking calls, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week is A Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins. A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence. And again, the author is Jeff Hawkins. I just read a little bit about the book, seemed interesting. It just came out, I think, earlier this year. So I don't know too much about it, but sounds like it could be interesting. Hopefully it lives up to that, uh, as I say, judging the book by its cover. A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence, Jeff Hawkins. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Compassionomics, The Revolutionary Scientific Evidence That Caring Makes a Difference by Stephen Terziak and Anthony Mozzarelli. Um, and uh, this book is written by two medical doctors who also, uh, Anthony Mazzarelli is, I think, in administration as well. Um, and they are basically sharing the argument throughout the book that compassion does matter. And what that means by matters is that, you know, sometimes we think of compassion, especially from a medical doctor, as something that's just nice. Oh, it was nice that this doctor was treating the patient, but also was kind or caring or showed a little bit something um, that they cared about the patient in a way. And we think that's just a nice thing, kind of like a cherry on top. But um, this uh, argument that they're making is that it's not just about it's something nice, but that it's actually beneficial in lots of ways, almost across the board. So that's what they're saying. Compassionomics is essentially the study of compassion and how it affects medicine. So they begin the book stating that first that there is a compassion crisis, that when you look at research from patients, from doctors and staff, we see that there is a lack of compassion that's being conveyed from doctors and the medical professionals towards patients. And so they say that's a problem because also they look at, well, does compassion matter? And so throughout the book, they basically show us how indeed it does matter for the doctors and the staff to be compassionate. And I'll go through some of what they share about that. And so they, the book in a way is repetitive in the sense that um, there's consistent arguments being made about compassion. Basically, is this related to compassion? Yes. And they, they talk about that. Is this related to compassion? Yes. And they, they share that. And of course, they're writing the book on compassion, so they're only going to bring up issues that relate to the topic and things they have evidence for. But they're citing uh, very well-respected research articles and, and studies on these topics. And so they make sure that it's a pretty comprehensive, but also a review that includes only site, uh, sources that would be um, well-respected and really we can appreciate. So uh, so to begin with, they look at the physiological health benefits of compassion. And so we would think again, 
when a doctor is treating a medical patient, that it's about just the, the illness and the disease. And I think that's, of course, a very Western way of looking at medicine and looking at health, is that it's basically about, um, you know, there's some disease, something wrong, and you just give a medicine and it fixes the problem. And maybe a more Eastern way and really a more holistic way is seeing the whole individual as a whole person, not just a disease or a set of symptoms. And they talked about that, how in uh, Western medicine and in documentation, often it just says 53-year-old male chest pain. And really that's what they become, 53-year-old male chest pain, not um, a father, a husband, you know, this kind of person, that kind of person, whatever else we can know about them. And so we very much depersonalize the patient in medical care. It's just this this symptom uh, or set of symptoms or diseases that we are looking at. And so they say not only is that not good and it's going to miss the point, but it actually affects negatively the treatment that it, that is taken in action. So in every respect, we see the benefits of compassion that they describe from the physiological benefits, which is one of the first things that come up that actually patients respond better to treatment when they have a compassionate doctor. As you might expect, you know, to me, a lot of these things they discussed in the book were not so surprising when you consider, again, that the way we feel as individuals, how we even heal or get better or how we're doing as far as health, very much is related to how uh, connected we feel, how taken care of we feel in general. So, of course, compassion is going to to make a difference, is going to have an impact. Um, and we sometimes think of compassion as something extra, as I said before, but it really is a big part of what actually makes us feel better. Even if you can't, let's say, help someone's heart physically, by being caring to them, you help their heart in an emotional way that helps them feel better. And as they make very clear, it's not to say that if someone is dealing with some serious medical condition and we do nothing but give them compassion, they're going to get better. Uh, that's not the case, of, of course, but it can really be instrumental in helping someone get better as well. When we look at things like compassion, it reminds me of how we feel better when people are around us and that we can feel better when people are around us, even if they can't fix the problem that we're dealing with. I think sometimes about kids and it's very, you know, we can think it's very cute and sweet, but really it's what we all do. But I sometimes think of a child when they're afraid of a monster, let's say, uh, a monster's in my room or, you know, there's something in the dark. And then they run to their parents and now they feel safe when they're in their mom's arms or their dad's arms. And what I think is interesting when you think about it is usually the monster that they're imagining, if it's so big and, and so strong, their parent would not be able to match this monster. So in a way, really, they feel safe because of that feeling of safety, which is what really is important rather than sometimes even what's actually there or even in their imagination. And similarly in life, oftentimes things can't be changed or the challenges we face, if they're even, even imagined, but let's say even they're real, they oftentimes can't be taken away or changed by an individual, but just having them there can make a difference. And they cite some research in the book which shows us exactly that, that, for example, if you're about to receive a painful shock and the research I've seen was done with women who then um, their husbands were involved in the study. So the women would be either alone or with a stranger holding their hand or with their husband holding their hand. 
And they even measured their brains and did subjective types of measurements. And they found that when the husband was holding their hands, they actually felt less pain. Or if they were about to anticipate a painful shock or something being painful being put onto them, I think something hot or I forgot if it was a shock, but either way, something painful, they would have less fear and anticipation of it. So we see that having that support, that connection, although we usually can't change what's going to happen, but just the support makes it easier. And if I may, I'll share a bit again of my personal experience that I've talked about lately. Um, My grandmother passed away just uh, a few weeks ago. And being with some family, uh, although the experience was still painful, we couldn't change the outcome or the result that she was slowly dying and then did die. But it did feel like we were sharing the burden in a way. Uh, The way I think about it is like if you're trying to move a a heavy couch or a big couch, alone you really can't do it and it can be very difficult if you try to move it on your own. But if you share it with a few people, loved ones, close people, it's like you lift it together easier. And it might still hurt or be difficult and still be a weight and a strain, but it becomes much easier to bear that pain. And so I feel like when we look at our emotional pain in general, there's this way that when we have others around and we're connected with others, it becomes easier to bear that pain. It's like we're really literally carrying that load together uh, when we have others involved. And so uh, healthcare professionals can play a big part in that when they're doing their work. So they talk about the physical ways that it actually helps people be better. And they talk about even the pathways that might be happening, the release of hormones and neurotransmitters that can happen when we feel that we are cared for. So again, we see this dividing line of what's physical, what's emotional, what's mental, what's medical, really is a much more blurry thing um, than just to say they're totally separate things because someone shows you compassion, which you might think is an emotional thing. It could physically make you do better. Um, It could make even your immune system respond better. People who are less lonely and feel connected to others, we find that their immune system responds better. If you've been hugged more recently, your immune system is going to respond better. An interesting negative effect of the pandemic, I think, has actually been a decrease of physical touch between loved ones or people seeing friends and family that they they used to see. We actually lose something when we don't get that physical touch. Um, So they talk about the, you know, physical benefits to the patient, the psychological benefits to the patients. Now, of course, when we say, okay, we want doctors to be more compassionate, an issue that can come up is doctors thinking and even people just saying, well, they don't have time, which there is some issues, especially in the United States, of not giving uh, enough time for doctors and patients and the interactions and, and for them to take care of those things. But what was really interesting was that they did some research where they would sometimes either instruct doctors to be a little bit more compassionate doing these things. Sometimes it was with real patients, sometimes with mock patients, um, or they would just measure different doctors' interactions with patients, see how patients rated it, see how you know different outcomes were measured. And what they saw was when the doctors were more compassionate, it wasn't that it took like 20 minutes longer. It was actually quite amazing. A lot of these studies found that 40 seconds was basically the difference between a compassionate uh, response from the doctor or interaction with the doctor and the non-compassionate response. So as they say, 40 seconds is not something that a, a doctor can't spare, especially when it comes with these other 
benefits. Um, but that was quite remarkable that it's just uh, even one of the chapters had that in it. Um, it was about the 40 seconds, the power of 40 seconds, um, basically that that can be enough to make a huge impact in how the patient actually feels that the doctor cares about them, sees them as an actual person, um, and really values them and, and cares about them. They also make, I, I, I could have mentioned this earlier, uh, the distinction. So empathy, feeling someone else's pain or being able to understand someone else's pain, they consider that the emotional part to them, compassion is when you actually want to and actually take action to make someone feel better. So it has the emotional part of the empathy, but also the action as well. So we see that as they explain, it's not that compassion takes a long time. Uh, so when doctors think they don't have enough time, and they really often don't, being more compassionate doesn't have to be something that means every patient is going to get an extra two hours of their time or it's going to change completely the way they run their practice or the way they interact with patients. They also share how it, it cuts down on costs it, for the medical uh, profession or overall health care because we have better outcomes. One, so the patients do better, that's obviously going to save money. Also, uh, doctors who are more compassionate connect more, they actually order less tests and things. And so they share how there's sometimes this misconception that um, if your doctor really cares about you, they order all these tests and labs and things like that. And of course, sometimes they're very necessary, but often they're extra and not necessary and they just bring up costs and actually time and all the things that we don't want when it comes to efficiency. And if doctors were to spend a little bit more time trying to understand the patient and the complaint and what was going on, as they discussed in the book, there wouldn't be a need to ask for all these additional tests. So when the doctors are more compassionate and connected to their patients, we actually find that healthcare costs go down. Also, they share lots of research showing that when our doctors are more compassionate and connected to their patients, less errors happen. So there's less mistakes that happen. And that, of course, saves a lot of money, but also saves a lot of um, pain and distress and even death in patients who don't get that compassionate care. So as they say, it even saves money because as they uh, discuss in the book, if you know you have a good suggestion, but it costs more, unfortunately, in today's world, very often it might not get implemented. So they actually share how it would reduce costs or it does reduce costs when patients, when doctors are more compassionate. Now, of course, the patients benefit a lot, but they do talk a good, about, a good bit about how doctors benefit too. And so there's lots of research that shows that when we are more compassionate, more giving towards others, more loving towards others, we feel better too. So, of course, the individual receiving our compassion will feel good and enjoy that feeling, but we know it makes us the happiest that we can actually be when we're being compassionate and connected with others. And so they discuss how burnout is such a big issue when it comes to so many people, but especially in the medical field where doctors can feel exhausted, stressed, overwhelmed, and they start to detach from their work. They start to feel um, like they can't take it anymore, feeling overwhelmed, and often it makes them either want to quit work or, or take a break or do things like that. Um, they mentioned that actually when doctors are more compassionate, it reduces their burnout. So again, this sense that I don't have time for compassion, what we're seeing is that you don't have time not to be compassionate. And it reminds me of how in life in general, we often will, um, when we feel stressed, we sometimes stop doing the self-care types of things like 
meditation, exercise, other things, because we feel like we don't have time. And I remember hearing this from a few different people, and I think it's really relevant that when you think you don't have time to meditate, that's when you really need to meditate. And similarly, when you feel like you don't have time to exercise, that's when you probably need it the most. And so similarly, if... Um, medical doctors, and it would also be true for any kind of psychologist, psychiatrist, anyone else, uh, when they are compassionate with their patients or their clients, it actually helps them to keep working and keep going and to feel good and feel better. They get to feel good to actually serve their, their clients or their patients. And it makes me think of, you know, when doctors become in this very mechanical way where they see their patients just as symptoms and numbers and I just have to get through this one to the next one. Because there's that lack of connection, they go through these interactions in a very empty way. Their work becomes more empty. So of course it's less fulfilling, less connected, it makes them feel less good. So they're going to get more um, uh, you know, overwhelmed with their work. They're not getting as much benefit from it and they're still doing all the stressful parts. So of course, burnout is more likely. So to me, that was interesting that they shared a few chapters in a way, or one really chapter was devoted to it completely, that doctors benefit as well when they're more compassionate, caring for their patients. So the book, you know, as I said, it was a bit repetitive because it's all about those things, but it's basically repetitive because we see that compassion and doctors actually caring about their patients in a genuine way and making that connection with them, it has benefits in all different aspects of uh, the healthcare process from the physical and the psychological experience of the patient, cutting down costs, cutting down mistakes, helping and sharing the information with the patients, which often can be a problem of what they need to do and how to take care of themselves, more likely for the patients to then follow through with what the doctor requests. And also it's better for the doctors as well. So I thought that was a, uh, you know, it was a good argument. It was one of those books that I would have already agreed with a lot of the arguments before I read it, to be honest, because I really felt that that would make sense. But they do share the evidence to make it more real and kind of gives more teeth to those arguments um, that I already was thought about or was aware of. But um, if you're interested in that and seeing how the medical field can benefit from people being more compassionate. As they say, you don't have to be a doctor to get the benefits of being compassionate to others. It's beneficial for any human being, but because they're both doctors and see the behind the scenes of what happens, um, they're trying to make this argument. So we see these changes happening uh, in, in the medical field. Um, but that was Compassionomics by Stephen Terziak and Anthony Mozzarelli. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, in this segment, I wanted to talk about soccer um, in a way. Uh, as any of you know, I'm a big, big sports fan, love watching sports. And this weekend, there was a lot of good sports to watch, and I definitely enjoyed it. But I wanted to talk about something outside of the game. So um, if you saw the, the finals for the Euros, the European Championship yesterday between Italy and England, you saw that uh, Italy won in a very close game that went to penalties, 3-2 uh, in penalty kicks. The game was 1-1 tied. But what I wanted to talk about was not necessarily the specific outcome of the game, but was the outcome after the game where, sadly and unfortunately, some of the players from the English team were subject to racist abuse online and even actually in a way extended beyond online, which was really, really heartbreaking. So um, Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho, and Bukayo Saka were three players on the English team who missed penalties, who are all actually black 
players. And so as soon as the game ended, they were subjected to horrible abuse online. Um, and even very sadly, Marcus Rashford, who um, is a very young, talented player, he has a mural that was painted for him in uh, Manchester, where he used, where he grew up, where he's done a lot of humanitarian work. And that mural was defaced with some graffiti uh, by some, which the police described as racially aggravated. And it's been covered now, and actually people have now been posting very loving, kind notes to him. So it's nice that a lot of times when we see the darkest parts of humanity, we also see the brightest ones. And some people very lovingly have been posting him kind messages there. Uh, but it's, it's very heartbreaking to see this. Unfortunately, it's not that surprising because we've seen this happen so often. And of course, we see racism throughout the world, but also in sports, it has come up a lot. Uh, so much so that you maybe have seen in soccer games when it's whether it's World Cup, Champions League, different things. I'll talk about respect or standing up to racism, things of that sort, because it has been a problem where supporters will even at games yell racist um you know, things to the players. And it's even gotten to the point where they have a protocol now that if it starts happening where there are these racist chants, I forgot the exact protocol, but first there's some kind of warning made to the fans. Second, there could be a, a stoppage in the play. And third, if it keeps happening, they delay or stop the game, which has happened a few times. Even I think actually once with the English team, um, because they do have me several members, uh, players of color on the team. I remember watching a game a while ago, but not so many years ago, a Barcelona game where Danny Alves, who's a Brazilian player, was going to take a corner kick and someone threw a banana into the corner. He actually kind of in a way of, I think he handled it maybe the best you can, a horrible situation like that. He picked up the banana, peeled it, took a bite and threw it and then made the kick with, with still a piece of the banana in his mouth, um, chewing on it. Um, but Things like that happen a lot in, in soccer games, which is really sad, a very sad thing to see. And of course, this is not only in soccer, it's happening or in sports, but it's something that exists in society and we're seeing it there. But I was really, really heartbroken when I, I saw this this morning. I didn't see a lot of the news yesterday, but today I saw much of it, of what happened to these three young players. I think Marcus Rashford is the oldest of the three. He's, he's 23. Um, I don't know if you saw the game, but as soon as Saka missed the last one, he was just in tears and, you know, almost unconsolable. Um, but it was very, very sad to see this. And you maybe have seen that the English team, before each match, they actually kneel uh, in a sign of solidarity against racism. Um, and some of the opposing teams have done it with them. Some have not. And sometimes that can create its own controversy. But um, they have been doing that. And, and even that gets some um, mixed messages. Some people don't like that. They get upset and they say, oh, don't put politics into sports. We, we want to watch sports to escape politics and not think about those things. Well, I think we can escape these things. They're always there. Um, and, and this is shown there. And actually, I've seen some people, I think, and very rightfully so, have said, see, this is why they kneel, because these things are still happening. These players are under constant attack by uh, so-called even fans, of course, the opposition very often. But in this case, many of the people who are hurling these racist insults online were English fans themselves who were 
frustrated that they lost, but expressing that frustration in, in the ugliest way possible. Um, and so this is why people kneel and they do these types of things, because we have uh, real issues when it comes to things like racism, that if we don't say something about, they will continue. And does kneeling stop racism? No, because I know sometimes that's a response you see from people. Actually, anytime something like this is posted, I'll see someone write some, many people write things like, and this solved racism in a sarcastic way. Um, but no thing like racism is going to be solved by one action or one thing. We can try to move towards a direction where we, we deal with it and try to make it less, but you're not going to solve any big issue with one action. And if you think it's going to get solved by one action or any big thing, then you probably don't realize how significant of a problem we have. Uh, so they're kneeling, and that's why they're kneeling, because these players, when they win, celebrating, and we're all happy and we love them when, when they do something good, as soon as they lose and they might have made a mistake or not done the best uh, outcome in that moment, all of a sudden the, the racist insults come back, which makes us think, okay, it's not actually that they're okay with them being people of color. It's almost like they're, because you're doing something we like and is good for me, I'm okay with you. But as soon as you don't, that the true colors start coming out. And I think that's really unfortunate. Now, Marcus Rashford, who I think is only 23 or 24 years old, he has done so much work in the United Kingdom to um, deal with poverty in that country. So he himself, and he, he made a very emotional post I saw on Instagram today where he alluded to what he experienced, but talked about his heartbreak and heartache about what has happened, um, about losing and then disappointing the fans and the country, but also about what he experienced. Um, he grew up in poverty in a very poor area near Manchester in, in England. And he even says things like food banks and soup kitchens were not alien to him. So he, his family was poor and relied on those types of things. And uh, as he became a wealthy football player, he has done a lot to actually bring meals to poor children. And during the pandemic, th this also happened in America, which was a concern. Lots of children in the United States and also in the United Kingdom receive free meals from school. So the kids get their meals at school. But when schools closed, this was a concern because these children would, of course, no longer receive those school meals. And so Marcus Rashford, um, he even went and served food to, to kids. We, you could see those videos and pictures. But he also did uh, a lot to promote getting food to these kids working with restaurants and food companies who, of course, some of them were suffering too during the pandemic, but getting them to um, bring food to these children, also petitioning and requesting from the government to, uh, you know, put funding that would go towards that. And, and the government went back and forth on this, but it was putting a lot of pressure on them to create bills and funds to then send money to these children or to provide for the people who were facing poverty and were not receiving meals during the, the pandemic. Um, so he's done so much good in, in, you know, more than most people who are triple his age or in their whole lifetime. And he's still really barely past being a kid at 23, 24 years old. And he's doing so much good. But because he missed the penalty in the penalty shootout, um, people are hailing these insults at him. 
And so to me, he's a hero and someone we should really appreciate and respect. And uh, I'm not really, he plays for Manchester United. I'm not really a a big fan of them, or I don't really care, but I will be rooting for him um, to do well because of the good work he's done and because of the abuse that he faced. Um, But it's sad that that's the part that gets looked at by some of these fans. And so I know people don't like blending these things together, but when I look at someone like him and I see that he has been given this opportunity, he's using using that opportunity to help others. And I think that's beautiful and wonderful. And if he, if we can say doesn't do that, we would want to see the problem, not uh, if he's doing it. But sometimes people think, well, this makes things political. I, I don't know how feeding children would be political. I think everyone should be in favor of making sure children that are unable to get a meal get one, but people can see it that way. So I just wanted to bring this up because I think it's heartbreaking to see this happen. I love sports. I know it's passionate. People get intense. I get intense. I was watching, um, I'm a Messi fan, watching him play Saturday. was very nervous, pacing my home as I watched. So I know the passion and the intensity, but we would hope that it doesn't come to this. And of course, it's not that the sports are making this a problem. It's that the sports in this moment brings out something that's still there and still very much uh, an issue and something that we have to make sure we don't ignore. So I know people sometimes might even think, well, these kneelings and the things that are happening, it's repetitive or what's the point? But we need to continue fighting for things to change until they have changed. And so sadly, this was another reminder that there is a lot of work to be done. And I hope a reminder to those who detract against people who make statements in different ways and they say, why are you doing this? Or just focus on, uh, you know, the task at hand, let's say playing a game, um, that they need to do this. It's important for them to do this. I'm reminded of a while, a couple of years ago, someone told LeBron James, shut up and dribble, that he shouldn't talk about race and racism. Uh, He should just focus on playing basketball. But before they're basketball players, soccer players, whatever they are, they are human beings. And if they care about people, they want to take action. And if they then are given a platform to say something about it that might bring about a better outcome for people, bring about human rights, then I think it's wonderful that they say it. It's complicated because you might not always agree with what they're saying, but they are given the right or they have the right to speak their opinion. And I think it's important to to recognize that. So uh, my heart was broken even just watching the game when the 19-year-old uh, Bukayo Saka missed the last penalty and he was in tears. I was hoping they would hug him. I felt this like sense of, we're talking about, I was talking about compassion, but this compassion for him um, that he missed that penalty that could have allowed for the penalty kick shootout to continue and keep England's hopes alive. Um, A lot of pressure to be put on a 19-year-old boy. So I already, my heart was broken for him. But then when I saw the response from so many of the fans, I was really, really disappointed and heartbroken and a reminder of the work that we have to be, uh, to do and to continue doing. And that's why I will talk about these issues on my show anytime I, I, think it makes sense or I can, I know I can do it even more, talk about different groups or different individuals who are being mistreated in society, whose rights are being infringed upon, or we see racism or discrimination in some way. I will always want to make a point to talk about those things because these are about human 
lives, human experiences. We should treat all human beings equally, and we're far, far from that. And sadly, what we saw related to just a soccer game became uh, a reminder of how much work is yet to be done. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So during the commercial break, I got a question on the Instagram live from Amir Arsalan 15 from Calgary, Alberta, Canada about breakups. So he was talking or asking me to talk about healthy coping mechanisms during breakups or separation. And also he mentioned something before about how uh, we can go through um, breakups and things like that. So uh, that's a great question. And I said this to to the audience on Instagram live quickly that, you know, going through grieving of my own, uh, losing my grandmother to death, we, uh, through life go through different grieving processes. Now, sometimes it's from death, but sometimes relationships end, which can be a type of death in its own. I think usually it's better not to be in communication with someone after a, uh, breakup. So if you do that, in a way, that person might be in that way, the way you were related to each other, no longer in your life, or at least they'll no longer be in your life the way that they were. So it can be a grieving process. So when people ask about, or we think about these things, how to go through a breakup, the first thing that comes to my mind is we have to try to realize what is my intention if I'm going through something like this. Unfortunately, many people's intention is how do I get happy again or how do I feel good again? And they make that the goal. How do I feel good in the quickest amount of time becomes the goal. And of course, feeling good is not a bad thing. I wouldn't be against that. But unfortunately, what it does is it makes us think the mindset is just make yourself feel good as fast as possible, even if that might mean cutting corners or getting away from... um, you know, my uh, healing, I'm focusing on just feeling good. And people around us will encourage us to do the same thing. Even when it comes to death or when it comes, whatever it is, a breakup, they will quickly say, oh, don't be sad anymore. Um, you know, if it's in death, they might give us a reason why. In breakups, they say, oh, you know, you you shouldn't, um, you know, be sad. It's a good, if the relationship didn't work, you shouldn't be sad anymore. So we get this message a lot from people around us from social media and maybe ourselves because we don't want to feel bad that I shouldn't be sad. I should find a reason not to be sad, but I don't think we should make that our goal. Yes, eventually we want to heal and we can get back to whatever normal is or start feeling good again. But what we want to actually do is make sure we go through a healthy healing process, which could take time and we don't know exactly how long it's going to be. Uh, What's also comes up related to this is I see sometimes in celebrity news, but also in people's lives in general, that if two people break up, people try to pay attention to who is happier fastest. And even sometimes who's dating again faster is somehow quote unquote winning the breakup. Oh, you know, she has a boyfriend already. He doesn't. She won in some way Uh, when that necessarily has nothing to do with healthy processes or dealing with things the best way. They could be actually avoiding their feelings and trying to date someone else as a rebound or just to mask 
their own pain or their own sadness. So again, we need to remove that the goal is just to feel good or who moves on fastest or who moves on in a way that we think looks cooler or better or something like that when it comes to a breakup. I've even worked with people and they said, oh, you know, me and my girlfriend or me and my boyfriend, we broke up and I didn't even cry as kind of like a badge of honor to describe how strong they are, proof for how strong they are. But if you're in a relationship that is a lengthy relationship and you pour your heart into that relationship, try to make it work, are emotionally intimate and vulnerable with that person, you should feel sad when it ends. It makes sense and it's almost necessary for you to feel sad. There are some instances where people might feel different. One thing I've noticed is if people have been trying to get out of the relationship for a while, but maybe couldn't take the step or more than likely didn't really have the courage to take the step or felt bad or anxious about taking it, sometimes it's like a prolonged goodbye where they've already broken up for a while. So that happens sometimes. But in the majority of cases, when we have a breakup, it is expected and almost healthy to feel sad when you break up. So you should expect that um, to happen. And even we would want that. So if you tell me you broke up with someone after three years of being in a relationship and you told me I didn't get sad at all, I'd be very concerned. I wouldn't say good job. But unfortunately, people say, oh, you know, that's great. If someone says, yeah, you know, I just thought it doesn't matter. And, you know, life goes on. And so I'm good. I didn't even get sad for a little bit. And most people will praise you for that, or people might even put that on social media to talk about how strong they are. But to me, that's not a sign of strength. So the first thing is to recognize that when you're breaking up and you're grieving the loss of a relationship, you should make sure, first and foremost, as is always the case, to let yourself feel what you're feeling and to pay attention and try to understand what you feel. Don't try to make yourself feel something look at what you're feeling, try to understand it. And the sadness is usually the first feeling that's going to come up. You know, we get attached to people. That's part of human relationships and romantic relationships in a way um, uses that wiring of our, you know, attachment to our loved ones, attachment to our caregivers. And now we have this with this person. And when you're attached, when you rip that apart, of course, it's going to hurt. It, it, in a way, it's supposed to hurt. And that pain is, in a way, the cost we pay in wanting to get close and wanting to create a healthy relationship. It's the cost and the risk that we pay. And actually, even death is that same thing. When I cry about my grandmother, it's because I loved her so much. It's not something that's coming from a bad thing. It's coming from the pain of losing someone that you loved very much, that you created memories and connections with and memories. And those things are, are beautiful things in the most beautiful parts of life. But of course, when we lose the person that we created those memories with, it's going to hurt. So to me, each tear is like a testament to that love. It's not something bad. So if you cry during a breakup, you shouldn't think of it as something weak or bad. It's something that shows that you cared about someone. And sometimes even people think, oh, well, the person's not worth my tears, sometimes if they're angry at the person. But when you cry, you're not giving them. Sometimes people, as it's almost like they feel like every tear you take then gets sent in the mail to that person and they get money for it. No, the crying is part of your healing 
process. You're crying for you, not crying for them. Um, you might even be crying about the relationship ending, which might seem it's about them, but it's about your pain of what you're going through. If you, uh, you know, fall on the ground and scrape your knee, um, it's not about the ground that you're bleeding or you're trying to heal your leg. It's your leg that's in pain that you're they're focusing on. So don't think of it as you're giving the person something. Let yourself um, be sad. But pay attention to what you feel. Now, a lot of things are going on when you break up. Of course, the memories and, and what you had and having that person very much can make you sad. Oftentimes, what people might not be as aware of when they're going through a breakup is you're also grieving the dreams that you might have had with that person or the goals and the things you might have done. If you were especially in a serious relationship, often in a serious relationship, if you're, let's say, not married or even, let's say, if you're divorced, but if, if you're, you're, you are married and getting a divorce, um, let's say if you haven't had kids together or you haven't gotten married, you think about those things and you've imagined those things. So those dreams are dying too, which can be very sad. You have to grieve those as well. Or we were going to have kids together or go here together, go there together. Those things also will be things that you'll have to grieve and might make you sad for a while to slowly let go of those dreams that you thought were going to be part of your life. We're going to actually be a reality. And now you find out you're waking up from that dream. It's not going to happen for you. So that's another thing that will come up. Now, you also want to notice what you're feeling and how much you're feeling because breakups are going to bring up relationships in general, but breakups are also going to bring up some of your issues or feelings that you have. So some people, if you are a very dependent person, uh, a breakup can feel very much like death, like you're dying. You feel like you can't make it without that person. Now, initially, you might feel that in a lot of breakups, and that can be okay. But if you keep feeling that way, that's something that you want to be aware of or notice. Am I feeling like I can't survive with this person? And again, that might not be about that person being so great, but about you not recognizing your own strength or goodness that I can make it without someone. It doesn't even have to be that person when you're dependent. You just feel like you have to have someone there. Um, so, you know, you want to pay attention to that. If you don't get sad at all, that could be something that you want to look at. Was I emotionally invested and connected to my partner? And that is not a sign of strength, as I mentioned before. That could be something that's wrong with how you're approaching relationships. You're not actually going into it. You're not willing to take that risk, meaning that you really invest some of your heart, your feelings, which can get hurt, but like any kind of risk that can have a reward, you have to risk in order to get the benefit, which is that actual feeling of closeness and connection that can come if you actually show uh, yourself to that person, try to connect with them. Um, so you want to notice what are the things that I'm going through. Of course, things like therapy can be always helpful for anything that we go through. And if you go through a, a serious breakup, it could be good to go through therapy again, not just to get over it, but to help you process all of the feelings that are coming up. What are the things I'm feeling? How do I feel now? And it's going to take some time. But what also is important is First, you're grieving, you're going through the pain, going through those processes that take some time. But we definitely want to make sure we learn from what we've went through. And that could take some time because when you're in too much pain, you might notice only the bad things or only dream of the good things again. Uh, or you might be so mad at the person that you say, I hate everything about them. I don't want to date anyone like them again. Uh, or you might say, no, I miss them so much. I want to date someone just like them where I want them back. But when you have a little bit of time and perspective, 
then it's very important for you to look at, okay, first of all, who did I choose as a partner and what can I possibly learn about that? Is it related to something in my past? Let's say maybe if they had some bad qualities, maybe there's actually good qualities related to my past that I was seeking out in this partner. Um, so that's very important. Who did I choose as a partner and what might that tell me about myself? And what did I experience with that partner and how they were that I want to take forward as far as, you know what, he or she had these qualities I liked and actually I would really want to make sure my partner has these. And also maybe there's these qualities they had that I definitely don't want in a future partner and I want to be aware of because sometimes we don't know until we're in a relationship how much something bothers us or how much something is important to us. So you can learn about your own experience. So look at the person you chose. You also want to look at the relationship you created with this person. So oftentimes, as Eric Fromm says in The Art of Loving, we think of the only goal or the most important thing when it comes to love is finding this right object to love. And if you find your prince charming or princess charming, the rest is happily ever after. Well, no, it's much more than that. Of course, the person is very important, and that's the first step I mentioned. But also the relationship you create with them, how you are in that relationship is also very important. And it's not just something that two people are definitely going to have a certain type of relationship based on things they do and don't do, um, actions they take, conversations they have or conversations they avoid. They can have a very, very different relationship. So it's important for you to look at, okay, what did I do in this relationship to contribute to becoming what it was? What was good or not good about that and I want to learn from that because it's very important for me to learn about what I did. We don't want to blame the other person. It's not about blaming ourselves. It's about understanding. How did I contribute to this relationship? What actually was good about what I did that contributed to that? And what was bad? Now, I, I'm running out of time, so I'll try to make uh, things a little bit quicker, but those are some aspects to look at. Now, the other thing is people want to know, when should they start dating again? It's hard to give a timetable, but again, if you have the mindset of the most important goal is to feel good, then people just sometimes think, well, as soon as possible, just date someone and feel better. And people will give you that suggestion. Oh, you're sad about your breakup. Let me introduce you to someone. But you have to make sure you heal first. So again, change your mindset from I just want to feel good to I want to heal properly and appropriately and make sure I'm going through all those steps that I feel good meaning that once you want to date someone else you shouldn't be preoccupied with them you shouldn't be constantly comparing anyone you meet with them that means it's too soon if you find yourself talking on the first or second date about your ex that almost definitely means it's too soon but you want to make sure you've healed before you connect because really to connect with someone you're giving them part of your heart and if your heart hasn't fully healed from the last one you don't really have a full heart to give to them and to give to that relationship so remember it's not just about being happy it's about healing and then creating a good relationship if you decide to do that in the future but so thank you uh to amir for that question i'm your Arsalan 15 appreciate that and that brings us to the end of tonight's show as always a big thank you to amir here in the studio and a big thank you to everyone listening out there you've been listening to in session with dr fatty Delaqui. hope you have a wonderful night mm-hmm.